traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. And today we're talking trade and what is driving the global economy. NAFTA survives another round of talks. They might finish it very quickly, but it's looking increasingly likely that actually this could drag on for much longer and maybe spill over into 2019. And we talked to Lord Jim O'Neill, the brick man, a trend spotter if ever there was one. We live in a 24-7 world. Here am I on a podcast for what I often think is a written form of media. And we discuss China, Brexit, globalisation and Goldman Sachs. First, the latest round of talks to renegotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement between the US, Canada and Mexico came to a close yesterday in Montreal. And it looks as if NAFTA lives to fight another day, despite President Donald Trump's threats to leave it. Mexico's economy secretary, Ildefonso Guajardo, remained positive. We are at a, at a much better moment in this negotiation at this point. Progress has been achieved in several areas of the negotiation, especially in those chapters that aim to modernize NAFTA. I'm joined now by Sumer Keynes, our trade and economics correspondent. Sumer, is his optimism justified? I think so. I think so. I think I'd summarize progress as a cautious OK. So I, I think this was meant to be the big round, right? They really wanted to get a sense of momentum in this round, close lots of chapters of the deal so that they could maybe finish it before essentially politics made finishing the thing impossible. So we've got the Mexican elections that are coming and they really wanted to, to close this thing before then. Now, the real development, I think, recently over the last few weeks is, is it seems that Donald Trump is becoming less impatient. So he made a comment suggesting that, oh, you know, maybe maybe Mexican politics meant that they could postpone signing a deal until after their elections, which takes off the pressure and means that, yeah, they, they might finish it very quickly, but it's looking increasingly likely that actually this could drag on for much longer and maybe spill over into 2019. Indeed, I think uh, the American trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, was sounding quite impatient. So this round was a step forward, but we are progressing very slowly. We owe it to our citizens who are operating in a state of uncertainty to move much faster. Of course, negotiating as a group of three is more difficult than bilateral talks. Often issues more co- become more complicated and contentious when there are three parties. So, Samir, what's holding things up? Okay, so first of all, he has to say that. He has to, to, to say that things are going badly and he wants them to go better. That's his role. He's almost bad cop in this whole thing. However, there are real areas of disagreement. So one of the biggest sticking points in this deal is cars. So Cars are massively important to the North American economy. It's one of these areas where really regional integration has happened. You have these North American supply chains. And essentially what America wants is it wants more car-related jobs to 
be happening in America. The deal, notionally, is supposed to support North American jobs, but America wants American jobs. So in a previous round, the Americans suggested a change to the rules as to what counts as a North American car. Broadly speaking, the tighter the rules, the harder it is for non-North American content to sort of sneak in to a car that ends up being called a North American car. So the Americans want much tighter rules than under the existing deal. And they also want a rule that says for a car to qualify and go tariff-free between Mexico, Canada and America, there should be at least 50% American content in this car. Now, if this is a North American trade agreement, then having an America-specific component doesn't sound very symmetric or friendly or even supportive of regional development. So what the Canadians have been doing is they've been thinking creatively about how to respond to the American proposal with an idea that that could be a compromise and benefit all three. They proposed this idea that what they would do is expand the, the kinds of things that would count towards the content of the car. So they want things like research and development spending, which mostly goes on in, in America. They want that to count. You know, that would contribute towards the minimum content requirement for a car. So everyone was sort of hopeful that this would lead to a breakthrough. Maybe the Americans could compromise on this and and step back from their very aggressive America-specific demands. But essentially in the press conference, Robert Lighthizer said that this proposal would do the exact opposite. Uh, We find um, that the automobile rules of origin idea that was presented when analyzed may actually lead to less regional content that we have now, fewer jobs in the United States, Canada, and likely Mexico. So this is the opposite of what we are trying to do. He said that if you loosen the requirements and and allow car companies to include all of this fuzzy-fuzzy research and development spending, then you could actually make it easier for foreign parts to creep into cars. And so it looks like this creative proposal has been shot down. So it sounds really as if, in a sense, we're back at square one, that the Americans are sticking to their position that, look, we're much the biggest economy of these three. We've been taken for a ride in agreements like this. We're really going to screw some more out of these negotiations. Yeah, the Americans are playing pretty hardball. And I think all people watching these negotiations should remember that Robert Lighthizer is both negotiating with the Americans and the Canadians, but he's also playing to his domestic political base, and that includes Donald Trump. So he he has to seem tough. But it does look like they're going to have to come up with something else if they really want to solve this car problem. Samir Keynes, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Next. Delegates have now returned home from the annual World Economic Forum in snowy Davos. There's a slightly less shell-shocked mood than last year, but nonetheless there is a feeling that the globalisation crowd gathered there is under siege. Lord Jim O'Neill was the chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management and in 2001 drew fame for coining the acronym the BRICS to describe the big emerging economies Brazil, Russia, India and China. Well, he popped into our studio here in London last week and I asked him how much stress he thinks globalisation is under. I think Trump and his colleagues are a bit stuck in the dark ages. This presumption, and, and, and with it many of the Davos participants and many of my ilk really, this idea that the US is the marginal driver of global trade, it's kind of a bit out of date. 
And at the core of probably why South Korean trade picked up so much last year is, is of course, China. I'm currently very fond of highlighting the fact that South Korea, one of the most globally integrated countries in the world, reported through its December and final year trade data for 2017, the fastest ever increase in South Korean exports since 1956. Uh, And another statistic I love to highlight is already by the end of 2016, guess which country had become Germany's number one overall trade partner? China. Yeah. So... This idea that the U.S. you know makes some noise about something and we all shudder, you know, I, in the early '80s when I first entered the finance industry, that that for sure was true. But you know, that's what is it? That's 38 years ago or something. And I think a lot of Trump's mind and his guys are stuck in that kind of time warp. I don't really see the U.S. is the key driver of global trade anymore. But still, it's quite uncomfortable, isn't it, feeling China in that role, that the US, for all its sins, did champion a liberal open world order, and China can't really claim that, can it? I mean, we're definitely living in a more complex world, but again, some part of my brain thinks, well, hello, you know, I've got Mr. Brick stamped on my forehead. This is kind of why I dreamt up the phrase now over 16 years ago. I mean, I think we are at least five years since so-called South-South trade, which is trade between developing countries, has actually overtaken trade between developed countries. And so, you know, we've been shifting into this kind of world for quite a long time. And what is more than than weird about it is that for big U.S. multinational, this is why Trump is also being advised badly, in my view, These are the greatest opportunities for U.S. multinationals. Another thing that I often say to people, it's a good three years since Apple uh, had its first ever quarter selling more of its wonderful phones, not that I've ever used one, into mainland China than it did in the U.S. So why is the U.S. not at its leadership level understanding uh, these kind of issues? I I think China is already third biggest export market for the U.S., does that mean that besides being Mr. Bricks, you are a China bull? Do you discount fears that China is a bubble, that it might burst? I'd like to describe myself as a China realist. Certainly, all the conventional ways of thinking why China's going to blow up the past decade, in fact, actually, since 98, um, the first doubts about the reliability of Chinese data started then. I, I, I've battled against those ever since. So in that sense, I'm a China bull. But obviously, at some stage, something will cause China big challenges and problems, because kind of like that's life, it kind of happens at some point everywhere. I worry about things that that most conventional Chinese commentators don't really give a lot of attention to. So uh, the so called Huko system and the, the whole idea of migrant workers. The registration. The registration issue and the the sort of second-class citizen. Uh, At this point of China's evolution, the the latest data now suggests the average Chinese GDP per capita is $10,000 a head. What what on earth is a country like that still treating hundreds of millions of people in a different way than the others? And and I don't think that is sustainable. And, And we saw a little bit of a snippet of some of those issues with the 
the pollution focus and the clean-up around parts of outer Beijing and the protests. And as we creep through time, that sort of thing is going to become bigger. And, and that could really destabilise China. In slightly smaller letters on your forehead under, under Mr. Bricks is Mr. Remain, <laughs> uh, an opponent of, of the Brexit vote in, in 2016. Yet you recently caused a stir by saying that actually the British economy is doing better than you feared. I'd, I'd describe myself as a sort of dispassionate Remainer, partly because of my life as Mr. Brick and understanding, I think, reasonably the way the world economy and world trade is evolving. I, I can see the kind of global Britain stuff that some of these strange Brexiteers bang on about probably better than they can. Um, so I kind of get all of that. The second thing to say is what I really strongly believe, I don't believe Brexit is as an important an issue for the UK as so many people think. In my opinion, the productivity challenge the regional productivity mismatch, the regional inequality mismatch, the generational uh, inequality issues. These are way bigger issues than whether we're in the EU or not. And I like to think of it in the following way. You know, we've been in the EU, what is it now, 46 plus years. That hasn't stopped our productivity performance seemingly deteriorating relative to others. So as obviously good being in the EU seems, it's not helping us deal with even bigger challenges. And a weird part, third thing to say, is a weird part of me sometimes thinks if the gravity of leaving causes people to focus on this bigger stuff, then maybe it's not the worst thing to have happened. Unfortunately, when you look at the evidence, <laughs> uh, there's so much time being taken up by the process of EU leaving, not really doing what I would want. That said, fourth thing to say is we live in a 24-7 world. Here am I on a podcast for what I often think is a written form of media. With it, we live in a world where unless a policy has got instant impact, we all sort of conclude it doesn't have any impact. There's been a lot of things done which I suspect might end up helping British productivity going forward. And we have some tiny signs of that maybe starting to happen. If that were true, that's way more important than Brexit. Is there a corollary of what you said, of your argument, that one of the big fears about Brexit, namely that the city of London will lose its status as, as Europe's indispensable financial hub, that those fears are, are overblown? Because if it did, that might actually be not a bad thing for Britain. What I also quite strongly suspect, with some increasing belief, partly because there are other things going on, is that London will suffer more than other parts of the country, even though it's conventional thinking uh, that London will be more resistant than the rest of the country. I do not believe that, not least because a number of policies on housing had already caused the London housing market, particularly at the high end, to peak. And we're seeing more and more signs of that at the same time as the rest of the country or many parts of it, housing market continuing to do better. That being said, and here my experience of being in a big firm that was very globally uh, orientated in my life at Goldman, the, the idea that you can suddenly take tens of thousands of people from our skilled and highly flexible labour market in finance to go and hang out in Frankfurt or Paris or somewhere else, it is extremely naive to think that that could happen. Goldman actually had a little, little flirtation of that when at the early days of the successful attempts to cap bonuses, 
some parts of the firm explored, as you should do for due diligence reasons, uh, shifting bits of the business to, actually, in this case, it was Switzerland. And, and, I, and I know Switzerland reasonably well. So I think you'll come back finding it's just not practical, just in terms of having the facilities to take a lot of Anglo-Saxons into housing and schooling, never mind what it would be for the firm in terms of the employment conditions. So large numbers shifting, I doubt it. What What is likely is that a lot of European firms will, will, will add on to, let's call them satellite offices or rep offices, so they will legally do what they need to do. And therefore, at the margin, it will definitely harm finance in London. But the sort of wholesale shift, famous last words, I, I kind of doubt that. Looking at your, your time at Goldman's and looking yeah. at the firm now, yeah. uh, it's just had quite a bad quarter. Yeah. Uh, Morgan Stanley's just overtaking it <laughs> in, in market capitalization. Why did I mention my old firm lead you down this path? <laughs> well, since you did, I mean, do you see this as, as a secular change that, that it, its business model no longer is, is as all-defeating as it once was and that the Morgan Stanley rather more prosaic business of focusing on asset management is, is a, a surer way to success for an investment bank? Oh, dear, 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 dear. Let me try to be really objective and comment, having been there for so long. Um, it, first of all, it's interesting that the share price has actually done pretty well since those uh, results, which suggests the markets either smell some different strategy shift or they've delved below the numbers. Secondly, in that regard, whilst the FIC, so-called FIC revenues, are responsible for the so-called disappointment, I think the rest of the firm's businesses actually did seemingly rather well, particularly in terms of investment banking. And so uh, I think, thirdly, what's really going on is something that dawned in my own mind uh, seven, eight years ago, which is why I shifted out of the research business into the asset management division, that the glory days of FIC-type businesses, long since behind us, and of course, Goldman was the preeminent player in that, I think at one stage, probably reported in a quarter four times what Morgan Stanley earned. So Goldman is having a very tough adjustment to that new reality, but it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, I would expect at some point, they will uh, take steps which I would have tried to encourage somewhat sooner about more, more active steps to become more important in the asset management business, as well as to consolidate their, their, their strong position in so many other things, which, as I say, those results already show they're doing. I would hope, as a 19-year alum. Lord O'Neill, Jim, thank you very much. My pleasure. If you've got any thoughts on what is the engine of globalisation, the Chinese economy, or London as a financial centre, please do get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in this show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. 